Paul Levine launched his very successful crime fiction career more than 30 years ago with the publication of his first legal thriller, To Speak for the Dead. He was part of a wave of lawyers turned novelists that included Scott Turow, John Grisham, and Lisa Scottolini. Paul has brought the Jake Lassiter series to a close with the recently published Early Grave. I'm also a big fan of his Solomon vs. Lord series, which recalls the classic Tracy and Hepburn film, Adam's Rib with its mix of romantic comedy and legal wrangling. Paul is a perfect guest for this podcast, mixing crime fiction and dramatization, because he has also worked in television as a writer for JAG and as the co-creator of the Supreme Court series, First Monday. Paul, it's a pleasure for me and Ryan to welcome you to Now a Major Motion Picture. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here talking about books and movies, anything you want to do. Paul, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, there have been so many fine lawyer novelists that there seems to be a natural relationship between the two professions. How do you account for that? Well, I think the trial lawyer is a storyteller. Uh, often, not an entirely true story, but the courtroom is his or her stage. And if you think about uh, movies that are set in courtrooms or, or have uh, certain dramas that have some legal elements, it kind of looks like a stage. Uh, the judge is in the middle. There are all, all of these roles. People come and go um, on the witness stand. Those are our, uh, we can have our protagonist and our villain. So a good trial lawyer has got to be able to tell a good story and persuade a judge or a jury. And that, that feeds into what you do as a novelist. I practiced law for 17 years and obviously went to law school uh, before that. And there is that old saw, you know, write what you know. Um, <laughs> although there are some authors who think, oh, write what you know. What you know is boring. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a job. And even if I look back at my legal career, I was a civil trial lawyer. Uh, the fancy name for it was I was a complex civil litigation lawyer. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, that basically means corporate litigation. It's just boring. But I had covered criminal court as a reporter with the Miami Herald, and most of the time, what we call legal thrillers are crime stories. They're usually homicide stories. Uh, I've only written a couple that were civil cases, including Early Grave, which is Jake Lassiter's suit to abolish high school football as so inherently dangerous as to constitute a public nuisance, which is a term we get from English common law. But sure, crimes, homicide trials, emotions are at their peak. Their stakes are very high. Will justice be done? Is the right person being charged? It's just a natural for fiction, whether on the printed page or on the screen. Bar, uh, sticking with with early grave and taking what you say about uh, you know what you see in the in the legal realms of being good fodder for great storytelling and certainly great drama, uh, early grave deals with something that of course Jake Lasser knows a lot about, which are brain conditions and CTE and full contact football. Uh, this is an issue that's obviously very prevalent. We hear about it a lot in the NFL and uh, professional football. But I'm curious as to what inspired you to investigate the subject at the high school level. Well, we're only now learning 
that, uh, you know, it's not just former NFL players who are running the risk of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a brain disease caused by repetitive blows to the head. You notice I didn't say repetitive concussions. You don't need even one concussion if you had hundreds of times your helmet's been slapped by the defensive lineman. You're, you're the offensive lineman, and he just whacks you, uh, which now they're not supposed to do. That would be a penalty. In the past, that was, that was well accepted. So now we're learning college players who've never played NFL football are at risk of CTE, and early high school, middle school, concussions and repetitive head injuries are very, very dangerous. We come back to the NFL. Something happened a few months ago with the NFL, which had really, really done a terrible job, almost like willfully disregarding research on, on brain disease. And now they've come around. Very few people commented on this. You know, we just had the Pro Bowl, uh, you know, right around the time of the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. It was a flag football game. Yeah. It was the first time. It was, they're playing touch football because these guys – don't want to, to have a full contact game that's meaningless and either suffer, you know, tear up a knee, which is bad enough, or, or get a brain injury. Was this story based on, I, I mean, I'm sure these kinds of, these kind of suits are happening with, with injured high school players. Was this based on a, any kind of actual thing that you had seen, or is it just sort of a, uh, you know, a blend of some of the material that you've gathered and knowledge about not only the sport at all levels, but also you know, how the law works within the sport? Uh, sort of both things. The specific high school football player injury I gave to Jake Lasseter's godson in early grade is exactly the injury that Mark Bonaconti suffered in a college football game, uh, the late Nick Bonaconti's son. And, mm-hmm. and, and now uh, there's a whole bunch of satellites revolving around this little nugget of information because Nick Bonaconti was the model for Jake Lasseter, a Miami yeah. Dolphins linebacker. Uh, Bonaconti was a much better player than Lasseter. The, the real right. one is a better player than the fictional one, but he also went to law school when his career was over. He practiced law for a while before he went into business. And he recently died of CTE. And, of course, uh, 20 years ago or so, his son Mark suffered this catastrophic, devastating uh, injury, uh, fracture to two of the uh, cervical vertebrae and resolving uh, quadriplegia. So, yes, that, that's, all, that's the backdrop. That's, that's the background. That's the reality out of which uh, I did a story with Jake Lasser, who loves football. You know, he, yeah. Yeah, he did, obviously played in this high school team who, he walked on at Penn State and still was able to play and, and, and uh, do something. Wasn't a superstar, wasn't drafted, free agent with the Dolphins, had a career, and you know, went to Knight Law School where, as he says, I proudly graduated in the top half of the bottom third of my class. <laughs> so, but right. there's a guy who loves football. He is showing symptoms of CT and has for a few years, which means a few books. Uh, and then this horrible injury happens on the football field of a high school game in Miami. And uh, it may be that the coach did something wrong. Been the wrong equipment was being used. But then the over the macro picture for Jake is 
is high school tackle football so dangerous we should abolish it? And that's you know, a fairly radical idea for a former NFL player to have. I think so. I thought it was really interesting. I'd never, you know, we talk a, a lot about the idea. Well, we got, there's this sense almost that, well, if we can fix things in the NFL, then it would maybe trickle down to the lower levels. But you sort of present this idea uh, in the book that, that it almost could start at the grassroots and go up. You know, it's like we need to kind of start this thing early. Uh, would you agree with that? I, I, I would agree with that. And there are uh, some things happening in high school football across the country Number one thing is fewer kids are playing tackle football every year. It's not a gigantic amount, but it's about 1% a year are, are, are leaving that sport for other sports or, you know, recreational activities. Some high schools, again, not large numbers of high schools, but some have eliminated tackle football and they've gone to flag football. Now, if you're the NFL and you're looking down at this, if you're uh, Roger Goodell, you're saying, hmm, this trend could be uh, bothersome if uh, colleges started eliminating college football. Well, you know, where, where are we going to be? Now, is that going to happen next year? No. But I think we've learned that just improving, say, equipment isn't going to help. If anything, you know, these wonderful helmets, which will prevent you from getting a skull fracture, have made players <clears throat> uh, more willing to use their heads, use their helmets in, in tackling. Uh, now, that's these days, that's a, a spearing or targeting a foul, but it's still being done. So, uh, yes, if we could do reforms at the, at the middle school, the high school level, if we could not have tackle football peewee leagues, I think that would be an improvement. Paul, we talked at the beginning about how you – worked in television extensively for JAG and for First Monday. And, and while you were doing that, you were also writing your novels. And I just wondered, did, did working for TV feed into the novel writing at all? Did it, did it show you different ways of, of dealing with crime fiction and novel form based on your TV work? That's a great question. I, I think undoubtedly, uh, writing television scripts for JAG, the CBS show, and First Monday also, I learned to write sharper, more concise dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you certainly have to do it when you're writing your scripts. I didn't know it was going to blend over uh, into the books, but I find that it has much punchier dialogue. In a television show or a movie, you don't have the time to have people making speeches anymore. I mean, you can... <laughs> yes. you can if you're, if, if you're making Inherit the Wind from the play and the Spencer Tracy uh, character is going to speak for three and a half minutes, three and a half pages of dialogue, that's one thing. But in right. the modern era, you can't do that. Yes. Now, now, speaking of television, Paul, I read somewhere that Solomon <clears throat> versus Lord has been optioned for TV. I'm, I'm not sure if it's for streaming or network. Can you tell us what's going on with that? Yes, not for the first time, but uh, NBC has it. The uh, pilot script has been written, but we have not yet heard whether it will be greenlit uh, to be shot. There are a lot of complications going on, including the possible writer's strike on May the 1st. So uh-huh. things, are, are, things are kind of mixed up in Hollywood uh, right now in production. Obviously, I hope that uh, whether it happens now or later, I think Solomon vs. Lord make a great television series. 
Oh, me that's, too. That's just me. That's just me. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a natural, and it's two great parts, and it's, you know, romantic chemistry, comic chemistry. To me, it seems to have everything you would want in a TV series. Well, thank you. And, um, of course, I was a big fan of Moonlighting back in the day. Yes, Willow and Simple Shepherd. Yes, yes. yes. Which, which had that, that, that same dynamic of uh, the man and the woman who bicker and squabble and banter yeah. and mm-hmm. look like they don't like each other, which means they must be in love with each other. So yes. And All the Howard Hawks comedies. Howard Hawks comedies. Yeah. Kiss Me Kate, if we yeah. want to yeah. go yeah. You know, the theater, uh, which I guess is also painted with shrew. Um, yeah. it, it is a it's class. a formula that works. I, it's a formula I'm proud to copy. Yes. Yeah. Speaking on the subject, you've you've worked for the screen and for you know novel writing as well. We like to ask all of our guests: uh, do you, Is there a favorite adaptation of yours uh, from the page to the screen, in particular uh, in the realm of legal thrillers or courtroom drama? I love the movie The Verdict. Yes. That is one of my all-time favorites as well, and I watched it last week. So I'm so glad to hear oh, you say that. Wow. I, I watched it oh. last week for about the 15th time. Yes, well, it could be a case, and this is not meant to slight the author, Barry Reed, who wrote the book, a very slender little novel, yep. the same story. But when you have uh, David Mennett adapted your book, and yeah. you have Sidney Lumet directing the show. And yeah. you have Paul Newman, <laughs> perhaps his greatest performance. And, I agree. Uh, James, James Mason as the antagonist lawyer. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, here is clearly a, a movie that uh, took the raw material of the book and it was adapted in, into the story of a person's redemption. For those either too young or, or who don't remember it, it's a movie from the 70s. Uh, Paul Newman's an alcoholic lawyer, down and out. He suffered. He lost his partnership when he was unfairly charged with some unethical conduct. And he's a drunk. And in the opening scene, he's trying to pick up a case at a funeral, pretending <laughs> that he knew the deceased. And... You know, how much lower can this guy get than the family physically throws him out of a funeral and now he has to redeem himself in a uh, seemingly unwinnable case against formidable odds. And it's not a crooked judge, a judge who plays favorites. And it was, it has everything. Um, Anyway, I, I go on too long. No, you can't go on too long for me with that movie because it is it is crazy. I literally just rewatched it again, so I'm I'm so thrilled to to hear you say that. I've actually, admittedly, it's one of those that I haven't read the source material. I haven't read the uh, the book, and partly because I just love the movie so much that I'm like, I don't know. Is is it is it quite different from the book? No, it's not quite different at, at all. I mean. Mamet did a slightly different ending where you don't know the jury verdict and you do learn the verdict in the book. Um, but it, it, it's just, and it, it's a short novel, a little more than a novella. It often, it seems to me, uh, that short stories, and certainly true with Stephen King's, uh, the adaptations yeah. of his work, make really, really good 
uh, movies because the, the bones are there, and then the good right. screenwriter can adapt it so so beautifully. And and of course, um, and not just in short stories, but if you want other examples, I like of uh, good adaptations from Stephen King's book. Uh, Dolores Claiborne would be one. Yeah. Misery mm-hmm. would be one. People, it, it, it's funny, you know. I think there's something at work that. How many times have you heard somebody say, "Yeah, the movie was alright, but the book was better." Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're always going to be different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this the screenwriter has this very hard task of compressing uh, time, characters, certain things that work on the page don't work visually. Um, so I like to look at them as, as two separate things. Given that, would you be interested in in adapting your own work for the screen, or do you think that there, you know, you 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 almost benefit from that separation? We're having another, you know, objective point of view and, and different writer come in, or do you have a sort of, you know, protective instinct for your own work? I I, I know I know you you have one circumstance <laughs> where where your beloved Miami was moved to New Orleans for for a, a TV movie. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, which I didn't write, but they took uh, uh, Stephen Cannell, Stephen J. Cannell, who I have immense respect for, uh, has passed away, uh, bought the book to speak for the dead, the first Lassiter book, and um, he, I told him this at the time, I said, I don't think Gerald McRaney is right for Lassiter, and he said, yes, but the network loves him, and McRaney lived in New Orleans. So we moved from Miami to New Orleans. It was a movie of the week, a two-hour movie of the week. It wasn't very good, let me just say that. Sure. Um, and uh, now I did write a pilot for CBS of Solomon versus Lord, 2000, whenever the book came out, and, and they never made it. Uh, my feeling today, and I'm not doing the one at NBC, I gladly gave up the right to do that, to get a younger uh, screenwriter, it happens to be a married screenwriting team, man and a woman, um, and I think their work is terrific. And they did stuff that I would not have seen because they weren't bound by the four corners of each page, even though they followed all the broad strokes. But what they added made it better. That's great. One question that I've been thinking about a lot lately as regards to television is recently it seems to me that entities like Netflix have shifted big time into true crime. I mean, I got caught up in the Murdoch version they did, the Murdoch version that HBO Mm -hmm. Max did. And I wonder, and, and they seem to have learned the way to package it as, narrative that draws you in and keeps you going for three episodes and and I, I just do you think that there's a danger that all of this true crime focus might cause a cutback in crime fiction on television I, I don't know the answer to it but I, I accept your major premise which is <laughs> wow there are a lot of true crime and you know for many years on on the networks, I mean, you could take NBC's Dateline, right? The, yes. Uh, either the husband has murdered the wife, or the wife has murdered the husband. They all they all seem to have that. Yeah. And they try to keep you in suspense for two hours, 
uh, you know, you're sitting there with your beer and your popcorn saying, well, he did it, you know, <laughs> I get to the end and see what happens. And then in the end, he's being interviewed in a jail jumpsuit. So, yes, that's going around everywhere. But I, I, I don't think it's going to cra- crowd out uh, crime fiction uh, from the airwaves. Right now, there are so many airwaves. Yeah. If streaming isn't going to prove to be a very fertile ground for, for novelists and adaptation because you do get more time. They don't have to boil a book down to two hours. I mean, my hope is that all these great crime writers we have working out there, such as yourself and others, you know, that these things will be made into streaming shows. Well, and a good point. Uh, I mean, what a luxury time is. Yes. Um, as opposed to uh, the old network uh, standard, both in episodic series and what we used to call long form. Um, and, and television uh, has done some really, really good work. If you take the Michael Connolly uh, Bosch books, what they have done, interestingly, is they've taken stories from different books of, uh, of the great Michael Connolly and woven together uh, what seems to be an A story that takes the entire season to unravel, in, in some cases more than one season, and then that they have the great luxury of time so they can have a B story, a personal story, a C story involving Abash's daughter, Oh, it's, and, it, and they're well-written. Because yeah. the, the flip side of having all that time is getting flabby writing and right. stuffing to fill up the time. They don't do that. Well, you, you've uh, rightfully been mentioned alongside other authors such as John D. McDonald, Carl Heisen, Elmore Leonard, uh, among many others who throw a lot of humor into crime fiction. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the role of humor and your work, and why why do those two why do those two work so well together? And were these uh, your influences of yours, or, or do you have do you have other influences who inspired your writing? Well, clearly, Carl Hyacin, uh, who became a friend, but before we knew each other, <clears throat> he published his first novel, Tourist Season, uh, mm-hmm. in Miami, and it was a crime thriller brimming with humor and satire. Now, at the same time I read that book, which I want to say was around 86 or 87, whenever it came out, excuse me, I read Scott Thoreau's Presumed Innocent, which is a classic courtroom mystery with virtually no humor. But the two of those really influenced me. And then John D. MacDonald, who you uh, mentioned, his character Travis McGee, I can't see the model for Jake Lasseter, but a, a lot of the philosophy of the Travis McGee character found its way into my head and uh, and into my work. Well, I actually think I read the LA Times described Lasseter as Travis McGee with a law degree. So that, that I makes love, sense. I love that. I love that. <laughs> oh, uh, Travis McGee would never have gone to law school. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah, my dream is that one day we will see a Travis McGee series somewhere. Well, people have been talking about it for many, many years. Even I have been in touch or used to be in touch with Major McDonald, John D. McDonald's only child. 
that may be yeah. continuing the books, but they're not. The estate is not interested in that. Somebody does own the rights to the book. At one time, it was Sean Penn, I think. There have been probably a dozen companies yes. and people who have had the rights to the book. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, this has been a great pleasure, and uh, it's good catching up with you. It's it's great, great. to have it on the occasion of the final Jake Lasseter novel, and and maybe hopefully a Solomon versus Lord series in the wings. I am hoping for that too. And Joe and Ryan, it's been absolute pleasure. Thank you. So it's much. been a true pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. So enjoy your work and have loved talking to you. And I'm glad that we agree on the verdict too. I got another fan. Oh, my verdict. goodness. I'm going to have to watch it again just to see Paul Newman <laughs> sitting on the edge of the hospital bed. No dialogue. No dialogue. Absolutely. You can see in his eyes he has changed and he is going to be this lonely warrior in the courtroom at any cost. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. he's not going not gonna to be bribed to make that case go away. Yes. Nope. There is no other case, he says to Jack Warden. This Warden. is the case. There will be other case. This is the case. This yeah. is the case. Oh, I'm getting chills. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much, Paul. Yeah. Take All care. Right. See you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.